Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, and as you know, host of The Brett Johnson Show. What you may not know is before The Brett Johnson Show came into being, I hosted the Anglerfish Podcast. The first 28 episodes of that are basically the Brett Johnson story. I bring in my sister. I bring in some former prosecutors, some former law enforcement, college professors, et cetera, to help tell the Brett Johnson story. You know, that life of crime, how I was given the opportunity to turn my life around and how I finally found redemption in my sister, my wife, and the FBI. Now, look, here's the thing. I've had a lot of people that have reached out to me and asked, hey, can you re-upload some of those episodes? So beginning with today's episode, episode number 62, I'm re-uploading two episodes at a time. Now, they do not have a video video component. It's just audio. Believe it or not, I, I didn't always think that my pretty face needed to be on video someplace. Times have changed. But the first two episodes, one runs, uh, the run is episode number one. Episode number two is Lions, Tigers, and Mommy. Oh, my. Episode run, one runs 30 minutes. Episode two runs about 35 minutes. So about a 60-minute episode together with those two parts. I've uploaded them because people have asked me, where can I find that? I wanted to make sure that people were able to listen to this series. Now, look, it does not interfere at all with the regular broadcast of the Brett Johnson Show. Because here's what we're going to do. Every Tuesday for the next few weeks until we get out those, those episodes of the Anglerfish podcast, every Tuesday will be two episodes of that until the Brett Johnson story is told. Audio only. Every Wednesday will be the regular broadcast of the Brett Johnson show. So tomorrow, today is a Tuesday. Tomorrow will be a brand new Brett Johnson show as well. Brand new topics. Not so much Brett, you know, telling his story and going stuff like that. The regular support group of the Brett Johnson show will continue. So without further ado, I'm very proud to present with, to you episodes one and two of the Anglerfish podcast. Episode one, the run, which is let me let me read the description of that because it's a very short description. Episode number one is called The Run. Meet Brett Johnson on the run from federal authorities after screwing over the United States Secret Service for a year. He's got 16 and a half pounds of cash, a road atlas, and not much of a plan. Followed by episode number two, Lions and Tigers and Mommy. Oh, my. Brett travels back to those not-so-sweet childhood years with his sister, Denise, to talk about the abuse he suffered at the hands of his mother. Without further ado, I'm very proud to present to you a flashback to the Anglerfish podcast. Act properly. 16 and one half pounds of United States currency will fit into the same type of Jansport backpack that you see thrown over the shoulders of high schoolers and college kids as they hustle back and forth from class. Are there any cokeheads out there listening? Okay, lower the straw, step away from the powder just long enough to pay attention. 16 and one half pounds converts to 7.5 keys, or 2,142 eight balls, or 7,500 grams of cash. 454 grams equal one pound, or 2.2 pounds per key for the 16 and one half pounds of dollars. It works out nicely that each bill weighs exactly one gram. 
So, the 7.5 keys, or 7,500 grams, equates to exactly 7,500 United States bills. And you thought the metric system was only good for drugs. For you would-be accountants out there, dollar amount depends on denomination, and the denomination largely depends on where you get the money. Visit a high-end strip club, and after all the lamp dances, overpriced drinks, and bare-naked ladies, you'll likely find a stack of $2 bills in your pocket that you, my friend, are going to have a hard time explaining to your significant other in the morning. A bank teller will hand out larger bills for a larger withdrawal, whether by pistol or pen, unless instructed differently. Grocery stores, gas stations, and department stores hand out a variety of dirty, grimy, crumpled bills. But if you are like me, the only denomination in your bag would be United States $20 bills. The amount would be $150,000. That amount in that denomination in a bag identical to the one I've described, minus the cost of the Grand Slam breakfast I had at Denny's, the prepaid cell phone and backpack I'd secured at Walmart, and the $1.25 auto trader I'd purchased at the 7-Eleven, sat next to me in the back seat of a Dallas yellow cab that was bound for some, I don't know, remote Fort Worth suburb. Welcome to the first episode of Anglerfish, where we examine the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original internet godfather. Now what does it take to get a title like that? 39 felonies, a place on the United States most wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of Anglerfish tells the story of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and you'll learn how I was able to turn from a life of crime to using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. This episode, The Run. Friday, May 19th, 2006, Dallas, Texas. I had sent the United States Secret Service a high and hearty fuck you. I didn't hide my identity when I'd stolen from ATMs earlier in the morning. In fact, I'd made a point of giving each and every ATM camera I met a broad smile and a stiff middle finger as I withdrew $150,000 of the government's money. I wanted Special Agent Jim Ramsburn of the Columbia, South Carolina field office to know it was me. He was the agent who had yanked me out of a cell in Charleston County to threaten me and my family. So, hey, Jim, how are you? Hope you're doing well. Fuck you. I remembered Agents Jim Ramsburn and Bobby Lee Kelly seated across from me in an interrogation room in Charleston County Detention Center. That was four days after the Secret Service had revoked my bond for failing a polygraph test. They had asked three questions. Had I warned anyone about the investigation? Had I been in contact with the New York Times? Had I accessed a computer outside of the United States Secret Service offices? Well, I had failed all three questions and my bond had been revoked. Secret Service let me stew in the Charleston County Detention Center for a week before coming to visit. Now Jim sat there, this smug look on his face, holding this Miranda waiver. Bobby Lee was seated off to the side, silent. The betrayed look on his face was telling me they knew I'd been screwing them over for months. 
How much they knew, I had no idea, but it was probably enough to warrant that look that Bobby was giving me. Jim laid the waiver on the table so I could see what it was, but he kept his hand on it, not yet giving it to me. Now, before we start this, Jim said, I just want to say, you're going to tell me everything you've done the last six years. I'm going to make it my mission in life to fuck over you and your family. Jim sat forward and looked at me. And I'm not just talking about this case. Once you're out, I'll hound you the rest of your life. Jim slid the Miranda waiver over to me, big smile on his face. Now, you want to talk to me? I sat there, looking Jim straight in the eye, reliving the last ten months being employed by the United States Secret Service. I had broken countless laws from inside their offices. Identity theft, tax return fraud, credit card fraud, more. I'd ratted out friends and associates. I'd set others up, encouraging them or instructing them on how best to break the law so the government could make more arrests and so I could serve less prison time. I documented with the New York Times, without permission, most of what went on from inside the Fed's offices, even down to the Secret Service computers being hacked and how agents had chose to watch porn instead of watching me all day. I had acted at the behest of the agents in charge to destroy a Canadian undercover operation and then been instructed to cover it up when Washington had flown down to ask what the hell their monkey was doing. I had sat there daily to be teased and ridiculed, forced to listen on how I was going to prison when the investigation was over how I was in love with a whore, how I was getting off light. I had lost everything that mattered in those 10 months. Elizabeth was gone. She was the reason I came out of quote-unquote retirement and gotten captured. She was also the reason I had agreed to work with the Secret Service. Gone because some fuck had hacked into the Secret Service computers and posted her information and history. Gone because I couldn't keep dealing with a barrage of whore comments from the agents. Gone because I didn't know what else to do. My sister. She had disowned me, not because I had broken the law, but because of my insistence on being with Elizabeth. I hadn't spoken to Denise in months. She wouldn't take a phone call. I'd tried constantly to call her, and she'd never even pick up the phone. Friends? Most ended our relationship when the papers reported who I actually was and what I did for a living. I had told them I was a fraud consultant. I just didn't tell them what side of the fraud equation I was on. The ones who did stick around left after being spoken to by Secret Service agents. No idea what was said to them, but I never heard from them again. Ten months, and I had betrayed everyone I could, and I'd lost everything. And now this asshole across the way from me was saying he was going to fuck over my family for the rest of my life. Wasn't enough I'd brought pain to the ones I'd loved and to people I'd never met. Wasn't enough I was going to prison. Oh, no. Now this guy was going to make sure it never stopped. I continued looking Jim in the eye and dropped all pretense of being nice. I don't want to talk to you. Bobby's mouth dropped open and Jim's face flushed. Jim jumped up and headed toward the door. Well, fuck you very much, Jim said as he stormed from the room, Bobby in tow. You guys have a nice day, I said as the door clanged shut. And that was the end of the interview. Two weeks later, Charleston County Judge ruled the Secret Service had revoked my bond improperly. My bond was reinstated. I was only state indicted at that point, not federally, so I walked out of the county jail. Someone forgot to tell the Secret Service I was back on the street. And I was pissed. I was pissed over Ramsburn threatening my family. So I quickly adopted a new philosophy I like to call, if you're going to fuck me, then you're going to have to find me. I called Kimberly. She was a stripper I'd met after Elizabeth left. I'd given her well over $60,000 by this point and figured I could get some quick cash from her. I told her I needed $1,000 and met her in a Lowe's parking lot in Augusta, Georgia. Then I went on the run, May 5th, heading west on Interstate 20. I arrived in Dallas, May 7th, 2006, with a little over $800. 
Found a hotel beside the interstate at $179 a week, paid for three weeks. Then I set out trying to make money. If what I was going to do didn't work, I was in a lot of trouble. May 8th, I walked into the sales offices of the Easy Paisano prepaid debit card. The card was targeted at people, especially Mexicans, who wished to transfer monies from one family member to another across international borders. The Easy Paisano card could also be used as a direct deposit card, accepting payroll deposits from employers or government benefits like Social Security, tax refunds, SSI, etc. I fed the owners and his sales team a lot of bullshit and a deep southern accent about my owning a construction company that employed illegal immigrants that I needed to pay, but you know how they are. They swallowed it with a smile. I walked out with a stack of anonymous debit cards without paying for them and without showing any identification. The next few days were in front of a computer screen at FedEx Kinko's, four miles from my hotel. Spent $12 an hour accessing online state death indexes, EIN directories, federal tax software, and I committed fraud upon fraud. By the time yesterday, Thursday, May 18, 2006, rolled around, I was busy as shit, worried to hell, and down to my last $6. Food? I had a half loaf of Wonder Bread and a package of Oscar Mayer Bologna in the mini fridge. The 97 Dodge Dakota I'd driven from South Carolina had a quarter tank of gas, and I couldn't drive it much longer if I wanted to remain free. If cash didn't come soon, I could either turn myself in or go live under a bridge. Meet Brett Johnson, located between a rock and a hard place. At 4 p.m. yesterday, I received confirmation from the Internal Revenue Service stating funds were scheduled to be deposited the next day. My last $6 went into the gas tank of the truck. If money credited, I'd need the gas to hit ATM machines, and I didn't want to pause my withdrawals to fuel up. If no money came, $6 wouldn't matter. From 4.30 p.m. yesterday to 4 a.m. this morning, I watched the clock and prayed that fate be kind. Would the money actually land? I'd hit this debit card company before with tax return fraud. There was a good chance they'd recognize the fraud again and shut it down before I could withdraw the funds. Picture myself under a bridge. Or if I were lucky, an overpass. Maybe I could charge a toll and snack on the bones of wayward travelers. I could be like the Billy Goat's Gruff, except the only difference being I'd steal my victims' identities and use them to furnish my overpass. Friday, May 19, 2006, 4.30 a.m. I'm not broke anymore. Instead... I'm stacking 20s into a Walmart backpack as fast as the automated teller machines can spit them out. I spent five hours skipping from bank to bank along strip mall areas, plucking cash from every ATM I could find. Now I had the money to run. And run I would. Consequences be damned. After five hours of withdrawing all that cash from ATM machines, I went back to the hotel, slung the money over my shoulder like Santa Claus, walked in the hotel room, and started counting how much I had had. I ended up with $150,000. And I spent that morning preparing to run, which brought us to that Dallas yellow cab headed for that remote Fort Worth suburb. The destination was an address given by the owner of a white Jeep Cherokee advertised in the auto trader I'd picked up. I was looking for a vehicle that would be nondescript for the part of the country in which I was traveling, one not so old as to have serious mechanical problems, but with enough years and mileage to not stick out and instead to blend in with the rest of the traffic. Plus, I needed to purchase from a private party so I wouldn't have to transfer title and registration. 
the Jeep in the ad was exactly the type of ride I needed. My call to the owner, Tim Trent, was a verbatim repeat of the Trader ad. Oh yeah, 2,000 Jeep Cherokee, only 37,000 miles, four-door V6 AC, power brakes, AM FM cassette, new tires, perfect condition, $9,000, what a bargain! And I was on my way to purchase the Cherokee. Of course, Tim, he didn't know my plans to drive on his plate in his name. And of course, I didn't tell him. And I didn't care. I needed to forego the title and registration process in case a cop swung in behind me and decided to run the plates on the vehicle. Much better for Brett Johnson if the Jeep came back registered to Tim Trent instead of me. So, hey, sorry Timmy, but que sera, sera. I arrived at the destination. It was a one-story brick ranch-style home. This balding, pudgy fellow, obviously Tim Trent, sitting on the porch. The Cherokee was parked in the yard with a for-sale sign on the windshield. And I knew just by looking at Tim and the house that he would take $7,500 cash instead of that posted $9,000. And I would be driving the Jeep back to the hotel. The cab's meter read $42 and some change. I handed the cabbie a wad of 20s, easily two to $300. Hey, 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 I can't take this, said the cabbie, holding the cash out a little puzzled. Sure you can, especially today. I stepped out of the yellow cab, shut the door, as the driver said, thanks, I hope everything works out for you. I walked toward my fate and quietly said, I doubt it. As you can probably tell, Brett Johnson used to be an asshole. I was egotistical, conceited. You know, I knew the end was coming. I knew it was. But in order for you to keep breaking the law, and I found this out when I was serving time in prison, you have to adopt this philosophy of fatalism. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Because if you, if you really sit back and consider that it's coming to an end, that you're going to serve a lot of time in prison, that everything is going to go south on you, there is no way that you can sit back and actually continue to break the law. You're too worried about it, too nervous. So you have to adopt a philosophy of fatalism. I'm still trying to reconcile that with my life these days. I don't know. I don't know. I do know that, that I screwed over a lot of people. I know that I was not a good person. I know that those that I met, I ended up making their lives worse, not better. Take Elizabeth, for example. Even to this day, I still think about Elizabeth. I guess I thought that um, she was a stripper. She was a stripper that I met after my wife. I was married for nine years, and she was a stripper I met after my wife left, and she had a lot of trouble. I'm not sure if she was abused or what. I, have, I had no indication of that. I know that Elizabeth was addicted to cocaine, that at one point she was, she was prostituting herself for cocaine. I found that out after I moved her in my house, and uh, I just kept thinking, I guess I thought at some level that if I could fix her, I could fix me. And of course I didn't do that. And to this day it, it haunts me that it haunts me that I may have made her life worse, not better. That that knowing me didn't improve her lot in life, but it just made it worse. I have no idea where she is today. When I got out of prison in 2011, I still remembered her phone number and I texted her. 
And she said she didn't want to talk to me. That's the only thing, I, the only thing she ever said was that. It bothers me that, that I may have affected her life in such a way that it made it much worse than it already was, instead of making it better. I think that it, I think I may have, may have thought that if I fixed her, I could fix me. See, I was naive at that point. I didn't understand that, that you can't fix other people. You can only fix yourself, and you're damn lucky if you can fix yourself. And I, Lord knows I had not fixed myself at that point. I'm still trying to fix myself 13 years later. Of course, Denise, she had disowned me. She had disowned not because I was breaking the law. No, no, no. Denise disowned me because of Elizabeth and my, my wanting to be with her. I don't I, I have trouble with that today. Today I still have trouble with that. And you'll get to hear from Denise in, in the next few episodes. I have a lot of trouble reconciling my past with what I'm doing now as, as a legal person. Back then, you know, back then I used to justify my crimes. Back then I said I did it for my family, for my wife, for my stripper girlfriend. I believe that justification. That's part of it. Is as a criminal, you have to justify who you are, what you're doing. You have to be able to justify that. If not, your conscience, unless you're a sociopath, your conscience will, will eat you alive. So I did justify my crimes. I justified it by saying I was doing it for the ones I loved. I justified it by saying, well, I'm, I'm just stealing from banks or governments. They're not losing, people aren't losing any money. Complete and total bullshit. But that's what I did. That's how I justified everything. I, and I believed those justifications. It took, it took a good two and a half years behind a prison fence. And it took my sister disowning me for me to come to terms that the reason I broke the law was not because of my family, my sister, my wife, my stripper girlfriend. Now, the reason I broke the law was because I chose to break the law. That's a hard pill to swallow when you've lived your entire life blinded by your own justifications. It's a hard pill to swallow that the, the damage that you've done not only to yourself but every single person around you was because of your choices. But that's exactly what happened. Law enforcement, honestly, when the Secret Service hired me, I just was not in a position to listen to them at that point. They were good people. They were good people. They tried, they tried to help me. And I just was not listening to that. My entire, my entire mentality at that point was to do everything I needed to do to be with Elizabeth. I just wanted to be with her. And see, that's, just, that's a justification there. But my entire mentality was to keep breaking the law. I thought I could, I thought I could get away with it. It was still a game. I thought I could beat the good guys. And I'll clue you in on something. The bad guys never win. All right, so that closes out episode number one, The Run from the Anglerfish Podcast. Needless to say, I was a bit of an asshole. Understatement of the day. And without further ado, episode number two, Lions and Tigers and Mommy, oh my! Where I bring in my sister Denise and we talk about our childhood years. I would say enjoy, but I'm not quite sure that's the right word. Dad would have wrestled the steering wheel away from my mom, and he would have been pleading with her, something along the lines of, please, Carolyn, please just stop, please stop. That was like his famous catchphrase. 
heard round the house more than anything, and my mom, my mom would have slid over to the passenger seat as far away from him as possible, either staring straight at him or pointedly staring out the passenger side window. Most of the time she wouldn't say anything, and if she did speak, it was something along the lines of, I hate you, I hope you die. And my dad, my dad would just repeat that same catchphrase, please Carolyn, don't say that, please stop, just stop, please. But he'd add in those three words that were supposed to make everything okay. I love you. And her, well, I hate you. Now you might say that mom and dad had this unhealthy relationship, and hell, you might be right, but let me ask you this. If you were a three or four year old child and had no frame of reference other than what was presented to you by your parents, would you think it was unhealthy? Would you think there was anything wrong at all? And my parents, they didn't try to hide their fights. They didn't go behind closed doors. They didn't wait until we were asleep. Oh, hell no, they did it right out in the open. And you know, I don't know how Denise and I initially coped with those arguments. I do remember we got to the point where we acted like they weren't even going on. We'd be playing in the floor, and whatever we were playing with became the most important objects on the planet. Denise and I hunkered over those toys, acting like nothing was going on. Mom sitting on the couch, screaming, I hate you, I hope you die. Dad in a chair across from her saying, Carolyn, please don't say that. And she? I do. I wish I'd never married you. One of these days I'm just going to leave and never come back. You don't mean that. What do you want me to do? I don't understand what you want me to do is what my father would say. And Denise and me concentrating on those damn toys. I mean, we really concentrated on those friggin' toys. They were probably, like I said, probably the most interesting toys on the planet. We'd hear the argument, but you know what? It was best to ignore it. Hell, we didn't even make eye contact with each other because we were scared it might be noticed by the parents. Better that dad put up with that bullshit than me and her get dragged into the middle of their argument. And mom again, I do mean it. It's like she was possessed by this alien, just logical creature like Spock from Star Trek. I wish I'd never married you. And my dad in response, what would he do? He'd use his best head doctor voice. Please, Carolyn, not in front of the children. Fuck. All of a sudden when he said that, it always looked like me and Denise were about to be dragged right into the middle of this argument. But mom, gotta say this for her, she would rarely take that bait. More often than not, my dad making a remark like that would only result in my mom turning into this mushroom cloud laying motherfucker, motherfucker. You think she yelled before? Oh shit, no. This was the stuff warning sirens were made out of. And it would quickly quickly stop being just words. If something was within her reach, it would get thrown. Please, Carolyn, not in front of the children. Ah! Quick, is she drinking something? There goes that damn glass at his head. Is that an ashtray by her side? You better damn well duck. And me and Denise, insistent about not paying attention to any of that bullshit. Very important for us not to acknowledge any of it. And you know, I'm not sure why that was so important to me and Denise. I guess we thought if we ignored it, if we didn't see it, then maybe in some weird world somewhere, it didn't really take place. It wouldn't affect us and we wouldn't be involved. Of course, you know, it was this coping mechanism. It was the only tool she and I had in order to cope with what our parents were doing in our presence. Denise and me, well, we usually didn't even know what was thrown until the argument was over. 
dad would either be cleaning up the glass so we'd see what it was, or mom and dad would adjourn to the bedroom for this hot, wet, makeup monkey sex. Then, and only then, was it safe to look around and see what kind of shit had been broken up during their fight. Now, I do remember a lot of shit being thrown, but not much stuff getting broken. So dad must have been a pretty good catch. And I guess he had to be negative reinforcement bullshit and all that. There was this one time she threw an ashtray and it caught him right above the eye. He had to go to the emergency room for stitches on that one. I don't remember him really being hit after that, so I guess I'm betting that he learned to catch pretty quick. I also suspect he learned to move anything dangerous out of her reach prior to getting engaged in an argument with her. I would say dad learned how to duck pretty well, but my dad is a big man, and big men don't duck. Welcome to this episode of the Angler Fish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original internet godfather. How did I get that title? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. Denise and I have never really discussed this before, and I'm very appreciative that she's came in and she's willing to sit down and talk with not only me, but with you guys about the type of mom and the type of life we had growing up. You know, Denise, I don't know if I've ever told you or not, but my earliest memory, I've got two, but the first memory that I have of my mom, we were at Fort Lewis, Washington on base there, and you and I were in the back seat of this white Oldsmobile that we used to own. We owned a four-door Oldsmobile, like that car from the Evil Dead that Bruce Campbell drives. We were in that, and you and I were in the back seat, and we were probably, you know, doing the don't touch me, don't touch me type stuff. And mom and dad were up front arguing. Of course, you know, when I say arguing, basically it was mom screaming and dad looking at mom saying, well, Carolyn, what do you want? What is it, Carolyn? What's wrong? What can I do? My memory has it as raining. So I remember mom lunges across the car, grabs the steering wheel from dad. She yells, are you ready to die, you son of a bitch? and tries to steer us into oncoming traffic. I've got that as a first memory. And the other first memory that I have was we were in Airport Gardens in Hazard, Kentucky. And I remember my mom, Carolyn, had a woman tied up to a tree in the front yard. 
and she was beating this woman, and the woman was bloody and crying and begging, and the neighbors were outside watching it, and of course I was there, and I think you were there too. And I remember that as the woman had slept with my mom's sister's husband, Nita. Was that when she was married to that guy from Breathitt County? That was not. That was Gary Paul Baker was who she was married to at that point. And Gary Paul had just beaten the hell out of Anita. And, of course, Mom took offense to that and went up there with a gun to try to kill him. But this was another woman entirely and another man, I think. Was this pre-Fort Knox? This was before we went to Fort Knox. Yeah, this would have been when we were uh, very young, I guess before we moved to, uh, to West Germany at the time. So this would have been in the 70s. I guess I would have maybe been six, you five, something like that. I remember being in the car, but I thought it was night. And I don't remember exactly what happened. I just remember feeling afraid. Dad got her away from the steering wheel. And I remember because, you know, that was his catchphrase at that point. And it was, what can I do? What can I do, Carolyn? That was always what he was saying. What can I do? What do you want? And she would always respond with, just for you to die. <laughs> so obviously those are my first memories. What are your first memories of, of your mom, Carolyn? Well, I remember something being very wrong. I don't remember exactly what it was. I don't remember the woman in the tree. It's probably a good thing. <laughs> probably a good thing. <laughs> One of my earliest memories was actually when we were in Germany. We had apparently just moved there. And so we lived in an apartment and I can remember mom like she had a pantyhose over her head and just sheer terror. I thought we were playing and then it turned very wrong somehow. I just remember sheer terror of her at that point. Well, do you remember the exorcism and the seance in, in, in Germany? Oh, God. So for those who don't know, I've spoken about it a couple of times, but my dad was in the military. He was a captain, a helicopter pilot in the army. We had been transferred to West Germany. We lived in this place called Swabish Hall. Now my mom, if you've not gotten the point yet, my mom had some difficulties mentally. So I like to say she was bug fuck crazy. But what happened while we were in Germany, she gets it in her head that our apartment was possessed and she gets it so much in her head that she goes to talk to a priest she goes to the library to start to pull up records she convinces herself that the apartment complex was built on the same spot that a nazi concentration camp train used to run through and this train had stopped there at one point and these two people had gotten off running for it and they had been shot while running on the same grounds this apartment complex was built me and Denise, I mean, we're like four and five at this point, so we don't know any better, but she's going crazy over this, man. So she convinces us as kids that the apartment's haunted. Not only that, but she goes and gets all of the neighbors in the apartment complex that would actually sit down and do it with her to have a seance. She brings a priest in to exercise the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> now, so you do remember some of that. I totally remember that. I remember the frenzy of it all. Looking back on it, she really enjoyed the attention from it, I think. But she convinced herself, and she's very charismatic, so she convinced everybody else as well. And so it was more something else to be afraid of. Oh, yeah. To her, it was there's an evil entity 
in the apartment doing things. She convinced me that this one hall that we had in the apartment was haunted and I was scared to walk through the hall because I, I started to see stuff. You know, I started to see these things in the shadows. When you're five, you do that, <laughs> you know? So, but I, I think you said it just a second ago. She liked the attention. Yeah, she did. For me, mom was one of these people that for whatever reason, she had to always test to see how much you loved her. If she could continue to do this and you would still be there, yeah. could she miss, how much could she abuse you and you would still come back to her? Right. And if she felt that she went over the line, which she always went over the line. Not our mom, over the line? Yeah, it was, I'll make it up to you by, I'll get your present. Let me get you something. Or stealing something if you didn't have the money. So yeah. it was always something like that. <laughs> yeah, but my earliest memory of her would just be that sheer terror. And I can't remember what it was she did. Well, you were so young. I mean, you just have the emotion from that. You don't really have the memory from that anymore. I guess that's one of the things that I was a little bit older, so I have a lot of those memories. So, you know, we came back from West Germany and we moved to Fort Knox, Kentucky. You know, I guess mom was cheating on dad throughout the entire marriage. But when I first started to notice it was when we moved to Fort Knox. Remember this one guy, his name was Scott Rose. Scott Rose was this guy's name. You know, I remember his name too. Isn't that funny that we remember his name? We remember his name, Scott Rose. And what happened was is that mom started to date this guy Surely she had been screwing around on dad long before that, but she ends up bringing this guy home to my father, to dad. I don't know if you remember this or not, but she brings Scott Rose to the house, sits dad down. So it's me, you, dad, Scott Rose, and mom sitting in the living room. Dad is crying like a baby, begging her not to do it. Mom is sitting there saying, I love him. I'm leaving you. I'm taking the kids with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she proceeds to do that as dad is crying his eyes out. So we moved from Fort Knox to a hotel in Hazard, Kentucky. So all four of us are living in this little rinky-dink hotel room in Hazard, Kentucky. And every time they have sex, which is frequently, you and I have to leave the hotel room and walk outside down the street for a while until they're through. And if they're in a car, there was a couple instances where they were in the car and they got horny. This one that we were in Jackson, Kentucky, they pull off to the side of the road on the side of the road, tell us to get out, walk down the road a while, and they'll come and get us. So as they, as they got freaky. And of course, Scott was an alcoholic. He was a horrible drinker, but mama convinced herself she loved him. That lasted, what, three, four months, something like that. <laughs> until she comes back to dad. <laughs> I guess I've got more of these memories than you do. And, you know, there was the one point that dad got tired of it. The one was he filed for divorce. We were back in Hazard, Kentucky at that point. So, you know, he was a helicopter pilot. The Army starts to downsize. He drops out of the military and goes into coal mining. So, well, didn't he not get promoted because she raised some That is the other day. part of it. He was a captain. He was looking for a promotion to a major, and he didn't get the promotion. And to this day, no one will tell me why that didn't happen. But, of course, it was because mom was 
known as the nut on the base, and maybe because she was sleeping with his fellow officers. Because she was like that. When he drops out of the Army and we've moved back to Hazard, Kentucky, he's working the night shift at the coal company. She's partying every single night, going out to these clubs, whatever men she can find. He knows about it, but he's just begging her to stop. That was dad, right? He was like, you know, just what can I do? What can I do? What do you want? And it was always, not you, I want you to die. <laughs> so, you know, that was, that was it. But he files for divorce, right? And uh, at that point, that lasted about six months, and then we end up, so, you know, we were at, in airport gardens, and what it was is there was the upstairs where my grandfather, grandmother, two cousins, Sean and Ronnie, lived upstairs. You and mom move upstairs there. And me and dad are downstairs and because Paul, our grandfather, had made the downstairs into apartment units. So me and dad were downstairs in an apartment unit and, you know, never the twain should meet. You know, we sh- you got to stay inside. You can't go out, you know, blah, blah, blah. We had been down there a few weeks and I was asleep and dad was sleeping on the couch. And something caused me to wake up and I walk into the living room where dad's asleep on the couch and mom climbed through a window at night with a butcher knife and she has a butcher knife held to dad's throat, threatening to kill him. And he is begging her not to. And this is mom to a T here. She lets him go and she realizes that, as you said a minute ago, she has went too far, right? So she has done something too much all of a sudden. So she has to fix it. And this is how she fixes it. She goes to the bathroom, gets a safety razor, and acts like she's trying to cut her wrist. So she scrapes her wrist up a little bit, starts screaming. It's not even bleeding. She starts screaming, and Dad comes to the rescue. And the entire thing's forgotten at that point because she's all of a sudden transitioned it from being trying to kill Dad to it being, oh, I'm trying to hurt myself. I'm so sorry. Help me, help me. So... Oh, God. I remember some of the men and being there. She would take us with her sometimes. She'd either leave us in the car or sometimes she'd let us stay in the living room and she went to the bedroom. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't understand. I remember trying to be good so that Mom wasn't mad. Well, you always had to watch what you were doing, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You never knew how the wind was blowing on a certain day. That's true. And, you know, you talk about our grandparents, and that was a whole other ball of wax right there because how dysfunctional and just absolutely insane that was. And for those who don't know, so what happens is, is that my mom finally, I was maybe 9 or 10, Denise, a year younger, she finally leaves my dad. We were in Panama City, Florida, and my recollection, and Denise's is a little different on that, but my recollection is that my great-grandfather had died. We were supposed to be going up for the funeral, supposed to be going up there for two days, and then coming right back. (laughs) We'll be back in two days. And that never happened. And she had that girl, Yolanda. She used her car and told Yolanda the same thing. We're just going up there for a little while. Right. And we'll be right back. And of course, Yolanda was young and very naive. And so, of course, I was too. I packed for two days. Of course. Yeah. Only had a couple pair of underwear. Right. Right. Two pairs of underwear. We go up there and we never come back. And of course, 
mom's out partying all the time, days at a time. And of course, the grandparents, Paul Campbell and Alverna, they don't want us there, and they're crazy. And when I say they're crazy, Paul Campbell used to chase people around the house, including the kids, with a butcher knife or a rifle. A chain, a rope, a piece of hose. You would have to watch out at all times. You played the television. If the television was on past 10 o'clock at night and it had any volume at all because he slept in the bedroom next to the living room, which did not have a door on it. So you could have the TV on, but you could not have the volume up. So you'd watch the pictures and kind of pretend what they were saying. If he heard anything coming out of the TV or if he even thought he heard something, he would get up, go to the breaker box, throw the breaker. And baths, we were allowed to take, what, a bath a week and two inches of water. Right. And if it was any higher than two inches, that was our ass at that point. Yeah. And even at that, I mean, when we were there after Mom left Dad, I remember being in that basement and having a mattress to sleep on. They were infested with roaches, so you'd, you'd had a mattress on the floor, and that's where you had to sleep for a while. We had no soap. Right. We had really very little clothes. I mean, two pairs of panties, and you weren't allowed to wash them. Or you'd have to wash them by hand. There was that, you know. I remember going over to Pizza Hut and stealing the soap from Pizza Hut so I could bring it back and wash my underwear in the sink with the soap. You know, but I had to be careful because if he knew I was doing that, I was wasting water and that would set him off. And if you set him off, his goal was to kill you. And it was. I mean, we had that round table in the kitchen upstairs in their house. And there were times when he would get the butcher knife on you and you'd do the little dance around the table <laughs> until he got tired. And then he would finally sit down and he would, he would look at you and say, don't let me catch you, I'll kill you. <laughs> or he'd get really upset and then he'd go looking for his gun and that's time for you to leave yeah yeah so you'd leave for a while and come back in a few hours but I saying to us your parents are sorrier than well shit and we should not have to feed you and, and they didn't want to feed us no and when we finally moved in the apartment downstairs we weren't allowed to go up there to eat they didn't want us up there no so that, that became the issue and I want to be fair about that it wasn't so a lot of the problem we were in Panama City, Florida. Mom would work long enough. She got a job as she was an LPN. So she got a job at a nursing home. Dad, the only job he could get was working as a clerk at 7-Eleven. He was making, a, I don't know if you remember this, but he was making $140 a week was what he was making. And he was working his ass off to do that. Mom got a job as a nurse at the nursing home there, worked for two weeks until she was sure that my dad was working. And then she started partying because there was an old boyfriend that lived in Destin, 30 miles down the road. So she would go and party with him. Not only that, but she started to sleep with dad's managers at work. So the 7-Eleven managers, she started to sleep with them. And we were going broke. Sometimes they'd turn the power off. Most of the time they had turned the water off because we wouldn't have money to pay the water bill. And we would have to wait until it rained at night. And we'd get out there with pots and pans and collect rainwater so that we could rinse off, flush the commode. They got to the point. Well, I remember her working, but what I remember is that there were always problems with the medicine cart. There was always pills missing, yes. <laughs> there were always pills missing out of the medicine cart. They were accusing her of taking those things, and she didn't do that. It was someone else that did that. Of course, but now she did take this whole side of beef 
I do. Actually, I have fond memories of that. You know, I was like, that was good eating. We woke up one morning and dad and mom were coming home and they get this entire side of beef out, this whole ribeye side. Yeah, it's a ribeye. That was in the refrigerator and we could just go and cut off a slab of steak whenever we wanted it. And put it under the broiler. Put it under the broiler in the oven. We ate pretty well for a while, but I remember that mom, I think she got fired over that one before she could quit. So she worked a few jobs, but she got fired over that one. Yeah, she kept getting fired. That's what I remember. And partying all the time. Yeah, and dad would try to bring like food home and stuff. He would, he would, he would, uh, anything that was going out of date instead of throwing it out at 7-Eleven, that's what we lived on. I mean, he would bring the food home. He tried. Since we were little, I can remember being like in first grade and I went to what, three or four, four different first grades, different schools. But I can remember us walking home and we had to fix our own dinner. Oh yeah. We were in charge of that, you know. There was nobody there to cook for us. You remember the dirty dishes were so bad that you had to do them in the bathtub? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. I think that what happened with Carol Sue, that's mom. You know, we were going broken in Panama City. They had brought all this expensive furniture back from overseas, handmade furniture, clocks, uh, crystal, everything else. Dad had some Rolexes, some nice watches and all that, and they they were going broke. Like I said, Dad was bringing home $140 a week. Mom was not really working. She was partying. So they started to sell the stuff they had in the house to try to make amends and pay the bills. And I think that mom noticed that. And instead of trying to stick it out and do what she needed to do with getting a job and buckling down and paying the bills, that she decided to just bug out and leave dad. And, you know, he told me that after she left, you know, he didn't have a car. He rode a bicycle to work. He had that dog that we had, Yogi. He couldn't even take care of the damn dog. He had a co-worker that had a place, and he ended up buying the dog a 50-pound bag of food and talked the co-worker into taking the dog for him because he couldn't pay for the dog. And he couldn't afford a house phone. There was a pay phone down the street he would use, and if somebody had to call him, he would wait by the pay phone to do that until he was finally able to, uh, to start making money and everything again. But that was our mom, man. She was, she was something. And she's still around, right? (laughs) You know, she had talked her friend Yolanda, who was a young woman who worked as an aide in one of the nursing homes where she worked. And so she had been very sheltered and lived home with her parents and was like 29 or something like that. And so she would take her with her partying. She had Yolanda take you and I to the library because we love to go to the library. And so she's like, Yolanda's going to take you all to the library. And I, I thought that was kind of odd. <laughs> Our needs were never the center of right. attention. Right. You know, somebody's going to take us to the library? Like, really? And, and we were such nerds that that was like, yeah, we love the library. That's fabulous. <laughs> and so she took us to the library. And actually at the library, I was like, you know, something's wrong. Something's wrong. This has got to be bad. And so I told you that at the library. I was like, we got to go. Something's up and something's going bad. And so Yolanda didn't want to take us from the library and bring us back, but we were insistent. And so she brought us home and dropped us off. And when we got out of the car, when we pulled up, the hood was up on that car. And I was like, why's the hood up on the car? So we walk in, mom is sitting on the sofa in the living room 
with her legs crossed, acting all chill. And I was like, what's wrong? What's up? Yeah. Where's dad? I don't know, she said. I look on the floor and I see like pieces of marble broken off. The TV is pulled out from the wall. And I was like, what, what is this? Come to find out after she had had Yolanda take us to the library, she had pulled the spark plugs out of the car. That's why the hood was up. And so she had disconnected the cable from the TV in the back. So dad pulled the TV out to figure out what was wrong with the TV. And as he's been over. And as he's been over, she, we had these massive candlesticks that were probably almost the diameter on the base of a, like a pie plate or a salad plate. Yeah. And she had picked this thing up, probably weighed eight, 10 pounds, and had hit him over the head with it, with the intention of killing him. Right. And so, when he went to leave or tried to get away, of course he couldn't in the car, so he had ended up Jesus. walking, I forget how many miles, to the hospital. And he still has a piece of that marble like in his skull. Right. But of course, with us, her story when we'd gotten home was, I don't know where he is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why that's on the floor. And I was sure like, where's the candlestick? I don't know. I don't know where that went. All right. So that was episodes number one and two of the Anglerfish podcast. That Brett Johnson story that spans 28 total episodes of the, the Anglerfish podcast when I was producing that. I want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen. I truly do appreciate it. Tomorrow we will have a brand new episode of the Brett Johnson show, which continues, you know, the Brett Johnson support group while talking about cybercrime and the issues of the day. So that concludes episodes one and two of the Anglerfish podcast, The Run, and episode number two, Lions, Tigers, and Mommy Oh My. Next week, two more episodes. I want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen. I truly do appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you like, hey, please subscribe. If you don't like, please subscribe. Leave a review only if it's positive. Hell, I don't care. If you don't like the show, say it. In the comment sections, feel free to... Um, to ask questions, anything else, as you know, I do read the comments in there and I do often respond to those comments. I want to thank you guys for taking the time again to tune in until next time. Stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. And what do we say? Just do the right damn thing until next time. Thank you so much.